You know, many people claim that because we now have a complete New Testament and the canon of scripture is closed, that God only speaks through his written word. The question is, is this true and is it true to scripture? And does this mean that dreams and visions and prophetic words are no longer a way that God communicates to his people simply because they're not necessary anymore? And then questions like this arise, has the gift of prophecy ceased? Has the role of prophet changed? And these are serious questions we need to be able to answer with Scripture if we hope to hear God's voice effectively. We need to be able to defend our position with the truth of God's Word so that we're not deceived and we don't lead others astray. And so hopefully by the end of this, you'll have a solid foundation to stand on and you'll have solid biblical reasoning um, in order to answer critics and defend your position. So let's jump into the word of God this morning. My heart is for two kinds of people in particular this morning. And on whatever whatever group you find yourself in, uh, I think it's very likely that you're in one of these two groups, okay? Group number one, people who do not believe God speaks the same way he used to, or at least in the same degree to which he used to speak in those ways, dreams, visions, prophetic words, you know, by the spirit. There's some people, what's up, Bennett, that would say, hey, the word of God is complete. The New Testament is 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 finished. The, the canon of scripture is closed. It's sufficient. So we don't need God to speak in those other ways anymore. Those other ways were lesser. Those other ways are unnecessary. And so we don't need that anymore. And so if that's you, my hope, my prayer is that you would understand my biblical reasoning today. My hope and prayer is that you would see, hopefully, um, uh, where I'm coming from and what scripture actually teaches, because I'm convinced it's actually the opposite. And if you're on the other side and you're like, I believe God does still speak today through visions and dreams and prophets and, and prophetic words and by the spirit. If that's you, I want you to have biblical reasoning for your stance. I want you to be confident. I think either way, my heart is that you would not miss out on opportunities to hear God's voice. Because if God is speaking in these other ways, and I've decided that the canon of scripture is closed, therefore God doesn't speak in those ways, then I've cut that avenue off from hearing God's voice. I've restricted God to one method of speaking. And if that's true, if it's true that the canon of scripture is sufficient and therefore God only speaks through his word, then let's 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 reason together. Let's talk through the scriptures. Let's arrive at the truth. Right? And if you're on the other side and you're like God does speak in these ways, I just want you to be confident. I want you to know why you believe what you believe because I, I think there's some people in here that go, "Yeah, God does speak." Well, how do you know scripture actually teaches that? That because we now have a closed canon of scripture and we have the New Testament, that God is still speaking in these ways. I want you to have a solid foundation you're standing on and not just be all whimsical and open to whatever, whatever's happening today, man. There's actually a way God intends to speak. There are guidelines, there are filters, there are boundaries. So we shouldn't just be these free for all, free floating agents of God's going to speak however he wants. And, and there's no filter and no discernment and no guidelines. We should have those things in place, but we should be open to whatever way God has decided to speak. And so if you're going today, God does speak however he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Cool. I'm with you. But let's make sure we can actually defend that view with the scriptures. And this isn't to shove scripture into our framework. It's to say, in all honesty, what does scripture teach? It's all we're trying to figure out. But let forget your viewpoint, forget where you stand. Because when it comes to hearing God, there are some people that are missing out. 
Frankly, you're missing out on so many ways that God is speaking to you. You've cut off those different methods. You've cut off those avenues and streams of communication. And so you're actually missing out on opportunities to hear God's voice because you've restricted God to one specific way. And we already established in the first episode of this series, Hearing God, that God primarily speaks through his word. And that every time God does speak, it will be consistent with his word, with his revealed character in his word, with his son, with the gospel, right? So there are filters in place. But I do want to take you, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Again, if you didn't catch it, there are people who are too loose when it comes to hearing God and how he's going to interact. They're too open to anything. They're even opening themselves up to demons and calling it God. They're even opening themselves up. I know there's discernment with this. There's following the leading of the Spirit. So we had to be careful and cautious and discerning. But then there's the other side where it's, you're so scared and you're so careful. And I'll never, I'll never bag on someone for being cautious and careful. But when it's leading you into fear and keeping you from what God's called you to, and you're missing out on ways that God can speak to you, I think it becomes a problem. I think it becomes a problem. So by no means, we're going to get into scripture, and by no means, we were established in the first episode, God speaks through visions and, and prophecies and dreams and prophets and people and all the different ways he's spoken throughout human history. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I'm not saying these things are normative. So hear me, when it comes to the list of ways God can speak and all the ways he already has spoken throughout human history, we're not saying that's normative. That's not expected on a daily basis where I should have this fantastic supernatural wind blowing through my hair and lights are shutting off, God's present. When I expect that and <clears throat> place those expectations on God, I might find myself disappointed or possibly opening myself up to even deceitful spirits, all the while thinking it's God leading me. So I just want to establish from the scriptures and, and, and deal with some arguments, people, cessationism is what I'm dealing with today. If you didn't already catch it, cessationism is the belief that certain gifts, certain sign apostolic gifts have ceased or they've diminished and they're no longer necessary because we have the completed canon of scripture. That's, there are arguments from that side of Christianity, and I love those brothers and sisters, that I don't think are actually biblical or reasonable, and we're going to tackle that today. But I want you to be aware. There's going to be people who come against you. There's going to be deceitful spirits and different doctrines that will try and test you on this, and I want you to be sure of what you believe. I don't care if you believe what I believe. We just want to know what does Scripture teach. So when it comes to hearing God's voice, we, in the first episode, we talked about how in order to hear God's voice, there's, there's a process. There's almost a ladder with different rungs and different steps you climb, right? Number one, you have to know God's voice. Grow in familiarity. Spend time with Him. Grow in relationship. Then you'll begin to hear God's voice. Then you'll recognize God's voice. Then that initial recognition will become discerning God is indeed speaking, and I'll discern His voice. Then I need to be receptive to God speaking and what he wants to tell me and what he wants me to do. <clears throat> and then I'm going to listen and obey and act on what God is saying. So there are steps to this. There's order. There's decency. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to walk you through some of the main passages that give me 
my reasoning for why I don't believe God has stopped speaking through prophets, why I don't believe the office of prophet has ceased, why I don't believe prophetic words have diminished or stopped. Uh, Maybe there are seasonal things, like throughout human history, there are seasons of heightened prophetic utterance and heightened interaction with prophets and God's sending, and and there are seasons where it's not as, you know, high. Um, But I want to reason with you guys, okay? Ephesians chapter 4 This is the Apostle Paul. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Whatever Paul is about to tell us, whatever this chapter is going to be about, it's going to be about this main idea that we are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there's a way God has prescribed for us to do that as we follow His Spirit. There's a way we're called to bear with one another in love. Okay, There's a way we're going to live worthy of the calling and walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called to. So have those main ideas at the front of your mind as we look at these other past at these other verses, they're all going to fit under this overall idea of, Hey, how do we walk worthy? Hey, how do we bear with one another in love? Hey, how do we maintain the unity of the spirit when, when, you know, Sally's really pissing me off. (laughs) I'm letting my flesh get the best of me. How do I let the bond of the spirit and unity and peace flow through me? Even in the midst of that, what do you, what do we do? What do we do? Well, first of all, know this, that there's one body. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So know this, Paul is working from that common place we all have together. We all have something fantastic in common. It's called, we are a part of the same body. We are filled with the same spirit. We all have the same hope and the same calling. We all serve the same Lord. We all have the same faith and the same baptism, spiritual baptism into Christ. We all serve one God. He's our, he's our father. We're all a part of one family. So notice the heartbeat of this passage is oneness and unity and our common ground in the midst of any differences. We are one in Christ. Look at all this stuff we have in common. And God is over all and through all and in all. That's the first thing we need to know about being the body of Christ, maintaining unity, is we're not pursuing something that God has not made way for. We already have unity in the Spirit. We're already one family in Christ. We already serve one God and have one faith. So from that place, just go and express that and live it out and enjoy what God has given you. You're not trying to achieve something you don't already have. You're just trying to enjoy what God has already made way for through his son. Unity in the spirit, the bond of peace, love in the midst of differences, right? You're one in Christ. And God is over all and through all. So keep these ideas in mind. It's going to play into the argumentation here, okay? Watch. It says, grace was given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what Paul is going to do is he's going to reference Psalm 68. Psalm 68 verse 18 is going to reinforce what he just said, 
that grace was given to each one of us according to Jesus' gift. Jesus has given us a gift. It's called grace. What does that grace look like? Well, let me reference Psalm 68, Paul would say. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. This is victory, triumphant, conquering language. This is Jesus conquering his enemies and leading them captive, ascending on high at the resurrection and the ascension, right? And he gave gifts to men. So his victory at the cross, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his resurrection is what makes way for these gifts that are necessary for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, and love one another as one body under God. And this is the grace Paul's referring to. He's about to describe what grace Jesus has given to his people. What are these gifts? Charis, far as I can remember, that's the Greek word. Grace, gifts, what God gives as a free gift we don't deserve, okay? So watch. It says, in saying that he has said, now Paul's going to give commentary on Psalm 68 and make it help us understand how Jesus is all over this passage. It says, in saying that he ascended, right here in Psalm 68, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, right? In order for Jesus to ascend, that assumes he was in a position that was low. This is Jesus humbling himself to the point of the cross into the grave, yielding himself in obedience to the Father in order to take on our death, our sin, and be put in that grave as one of us who represents us. And then he breaks out of the grave in resurrection power. So Paul's saying, how can he ascend if he didn't first descend? This is not just referring to the incarnation when Jesus descends from heaven into our world. It's referring to also mainly going into the grave, the lowest parts of the earth being the place of the dead, and he ascends out of there. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, not just in rank, not just in status, but in actual position. He's actually above all the heavens currently, that he might fill all things. So let's keep these ideas in mind. God filling all things, God being over all things, God maintaining unity and the bond of peace through his people, but we have a responsibility to love in the midst of differences and disagreements and theological petty things where we're called to bear with one another in love, right? So keep these ideas at the front. And the gifts Jesus gives are a part of all of this, a part of all of this. He ascends And he fills all things and he gave. What is it that Jesus gives to humanity? Not the only gift, not the primary gift, but what gifts does Paul have in mind here? As a result of Jesus' victory at the cross and resurrection from the dead, what is Jesus giving to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and love in the church and to honor God who is overall, what is Jesus giving? giving at the cross, at the resurrection, at the ascension, through all that. He's giving the apostles. He's giving the prophets. He's giving evangelists. He's giving shepherds. He's giving teachers. Now, I know you're wondering, why are you going here? Because cessationism is built on the belief that indeed some of these offices have discontinued because they were only preparatory in nature. 
They simply were put in stone temporarily in human history. They're there for a season until we have a completed canon of Scripture. So, capital A apostles, obviously they're done away with. Prophets, obviously they're done away with. But for some reason, cessationism will hold to the belief that but evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are still necessary. And I understand their reasoning. I understand where they're going. But hold on. Let's read why Jesus gives, how long they're necessary, and what's the purpose behind these beautiful offices in the church. Okay, let's think about this. Because again, cessationism, the reason we're talking about learning how to hear God, if you've already ruled out God speaking outside of his written word, not in not in opposition to his word, uh, not in contradiction to his word, but in complete consistency with his word and character outside of the written word. If you've already written that off as an impossibility and God doesn't do that anymore because the canon of scripture is finished, then you're missing out on the ways that God could potentially be interacting with you, communicating with you and wanting to teach and transform you. And prophets and prophecy are part of the conversation. So if prophets have ceased and the gift of prophecy have ceased, then it might logically follow, might, that the way God speaks to us will not be the same, but will actually be mainly and only through the written word. But if prophecy is still intact, if the office of prophets are still intact, then it, it, it takes away the leverage cessationism has to assert that, yeah, God does not speak the way he used to because certain offices and giftings have ceased. You've taken their leverage. If you can maintain that scripture teaches prophets and prophecy are still necessary, even with the completed New Testament. So Jesus gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip who? The people of God for the work of ministry. This is not equipping the leaders. This is not equipping the elders. This is not equipping the people who are paid to do their job in the church and we sit back and consume. This is the believers are doing the work of ministry. We're not relying on the leadership and the elders and the people to go and do what we're supposed to be doing. No, they're doing their job and we're trusting that they're following the spirit, but we're also doing our job. We're getting equipped to do the work of ministry. And a lot of people will restrict ministry here to evangelism. Actually, ministry here is anything that builds up the body of Christ. It's right there in the text. So we need to be equipped to effectively build up the body of Christ. What does that mean? To effectively maintain the unity of the spirit right here. To effectively maintain the bond of peace and bear with one another in love and, and, and live a life worthy of the calling God has put on our lives. We need to be equipped for that. And what is the methodology? What is part of the way God does that? What is part of the way God has sovereignly ordained? Here's how I equip my people to do the work and the calling I've given them. He gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And apostles here, contrary to popular opinion, is not just referring to the 12 plus Paul, capital A apostles. There is a clear distinction in scripture 
between the capital A apostles, those who personally witnessed Jesus in his resurrection and followed him and saw him in bodily form and were commissioned as the 12, the capital A apostles are distinguished from the general role of one who's commissioned as a lowercase apostle in scripture. And I'll give you my biblical reasoning why. Okay? I'll give you my reasoning why. But pause. What's the purpose for these five roles? Not just evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but prophets and apostles too, lowercase a included, meaning anyone who is just a sent one commissioned by God to lay the foundation, do the groundwork, church planning, appointing elders. <clears throat> we'll see this in scripture, and I, I promise, I'll show you. But these five roles are given to equip to maintain the unity of the bond of peace so we can love, so we can build up the body of Christ. And here's a clear time frame. In other words, if you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, how long do we need these five offices in the church? He would say, here's, here's when we'll no longer need those five roles. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And you go, okay, I think the church has generally reached that. I think we've I think we've kind of reached that. What's like Paul would go, hold on, hold on, to mature manhood. And we're like, okay, I think the church is kind of mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that, my friends, seems like an unattainable standard. If we're talking about the measure of of the stature of the actual fullness and perfection and completion of Jesus. What we are talking about is perfect unity, perfect love, perfect faith, perfect harmony, perfect sanctification. What we're talking about here is reaching the measurement and the standard and the model Jesus has set for us. Has the church at all have we as as any believer reached that standard has anyone reached that where they can say i'm perfect i don't need sanctification anymore i don't need any more transformation i've reached the stature of the fullness of christ which is that christ fills all in all perfectly if you can say that number one you're deluded number two you might be arrogant but i would say this that that doesn't seem like something we attain this side of heaven until the resurrection, until we're glorified, until new creation when Jesus comes back. So let's let's think about this. If that's the standard, if that is what sets the duration for how long we need these five offices, then guess how long we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers per the words of Paul. And we haven't even touched 1 Corinthians 13 yet. We need that as long as the church is imperfect. Once the church is perfect, 1 Corinthians 13 says, well, we no longer need these things, do we? Because we will have reached the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. He'll go on and explain what standard he has in mind so that we may no longer be children. Let me ask you, in any way, shape, or form, do you ever think like a child? Do you ever think immature? Do you ever, res be honest in the chat, do you ever respond immaturely? 
Mom goes, take out the trash. You take out the trash. What'd you say? I said, I, I'm taking out the trash, Mom. Calm down. You ever think thoughts that you're like, whoa, that was dark. That was perverted. That was immature. You ever had an attitude, an initial response to a, an, a, a, a situation or a person? And you go, you take a step back and go, that was very immature. If you have any immaturity in your life, and uh, me included, then guess what we still need? We still need what God said he gave us for our sanctification and equipping and transformation. Can God equip and train and chasten and discipline without these five offices? He could, but he doesn't. He's choosing to use, and I won't say he never will. I'm saying what God has prescribed for his church The way we're sharpened and transformed is it inevitably involves these five offices. To take these five away, or any of these five, is to disrupt God's method of sanctifying and purifying his church. So if you have any immature, childish way of thinking or attitudes or anything at all, you and I are still in need of transformation. We're not perfect, and we still have need of what God has given us as a gift. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. So to be childish here is to be easily deceived, gullible. Are you still prone to deception? Do you still believe lies sometimes, even when you know it's blatantly an outright lie? And you go, I know this is a lie, And I know God's word tells me in a million different places, this is a lie. But dang, I'm still really prone to letting it lead me. I'm still believing it for some reason. If you're prone to deception, there's another reason to need God's prescribed transformation method. Right? So that we're not, you know, carried out by human cunning or craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. In every way of your life, have you reached perfection? Have you perfectly embodied Jesus? Are you perfectly transformed in any area of your life? If the answer is no, then Paul would say, you still need to be sanctified then. Which means you still need what God has put in place to sanctify you. Which involves these five offices. How can we say that we no longer need the office of prophet or that it's morphed into a teaching role or that prophecy is no longer needed? Let's go. Let's keep going. So we may grow up in every way into him who is the head. So who is the standard here? Jesus. If you claim to be perfect, you are delusional, my friend, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God is systematically training and equipping his people to be self-edifying. Not just me, but I am edifying the body through my gifts, through my love, through my transformation, through my role that God has given me to play in the body through whatever God has put at my disposal. I'm seeing those things as opportunities to edify and build up the rest of the church. And that includes what? These five roles. 
This plays a huge role in the conversation about how to hear God's voice. Because if you're just if you're going to say that God only speaks through his written word, then that means the office of prophet and prophecy as a gift has to cease. Because those are primarily communication roles. God communicates a message to the prophets. God gives a direct personal word or a congregational word through prophet or through prophecy, dreams and visions, Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 3. So let me address, I'm going to be very candid and open with you today. I had a conversation with my old pastor in California who is a cessationist. We had a very long conversation and I would just like to share some snippets. It made me really think through this a bit deeper. It really challenged me not to stick my feet down even harder and go, I'm not budging, but to go, hey, maybe I do believe wrongly. Let me go back and actually address his concerns. And I just want to share some snippets because there's some pushback. There's some pushback that cessationists will bring against what I just told you. And again, if you're unfamiliar with cessationism, it's the belief that certain gifts and certain offices have ceased because we have a completed canon of scripture now. And God doesn't work the same way he used to, or at, at the same, you know, degree he used to. And um, I just want to bring those to your attention because you will have people in your life, maybe in your family, maybe it's your mom, who will come to you and go, hey, the, what you believe about Ephesians 4, l- let me show you why that's wrong. Okay, so here are some common arguments. I'm just going to read verbatim what he, what he messaged me. And I think this will be helpful. This isn't exposing or doing saying anything negative about him. This is just helpful learning. This is a teaching tool. Um, I shared this with him, and he said, you know, you argue, you argue the prophets are still needed in the church according to Ephesians 4. However, if that's the case, then apostles are also needed. He says, you even state that the apostles should be defined as missionaries. This is not the meaning of the word apostle, the Greek word being apostolos. Apostolos. It refers to the 12 apostles of Jesus and Paul. Hang on to that. What he's saying is when you see the word apostle, the Greek word apostolos, translated apostle, it refers to the 12 apostles of Jesus and Paul. And he says it is used this way predominantly through the New Testament, which does leave it open-ended for uh, it to be used in other ways, doesn't it? But let's continue. Quote, in order to maintain your argument that prophets are still needed in the church, you reinterpret or redefine the word apostle. That, and, it, and that if you don't, your argument falls apart. This is reading into the text your own meaning. This doesn't prove the point you're making. And I go, okay, hold on. We know that the 12 apostles, we forget about Matthias, plus Paul, those are the only capital A apostles according to the qualifications listed in Acts chapter 1. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Just that the there are qualifications to be a capital A apostle commissioned personally by Jesus, having seen him, witnessed, bodily form, all that, okay? The 12 plus Paul are the only ones who fit that criteria, right? But I don't believe that I'm making up the concept that apostles don't always refer to capital A apostles. So again, to, to distinguish for you, here's the, here's the delineation. The word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, doesn't always refer to the 12 or Paul. 
Sometimes it just refers to what I'm referring to as simply a missionary, someone commissioned to plant a church, sent out, commissioned by God, an ambassador, sent to appoint elders, do all the foundational work to get a church off the ground and gather and appoint, that kind of stuff, okay? And I said, you know, these people who argue the way he is, they even admit the word apostolos predominantly, not always, refers to the 12. And the question is, why is that? And here's why. Here's where the argument really gets good. Because there are either other capital A apostles besides the 12 and Paul, which I don't believe is true, or there are lowercase a apostles, which are different from the unique calling and authority of the 12. I can take you to passage after passage, but for sake of time, (coughs) for sake of time, I want you to write these scriptures down, okay? There are other lowercase a apostles, same Greek word, apostolos, translated apostle. There are other apostles besides the 12 and Paul. So I'm not saying there are other capital A apostles. I'm saying there are other people in the New Testament who are referred to as apostles, but it's lowercase a. They're not the 12, they're not Paul, but they're still called apostles. Meaning they're commissioned, sent ones, which I think functionally they're operating as missionaries. We see this in Galatians 1.19. Okay. It'll, some translations will say, except James. But we see that Jesus' brother, you know what? I said I wasn't going to show this to you, but I feel as if I don't, I'm not doing a good job. So Galatians 1.19. Uh, Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here we have two options. Either James, the brother of Jesus physical brother of Jesus, half-brother. Either he's being referred to as an apostle, right? Or Paul's saying, I didn't see any of the other apostles, but I did see James who is not an apostle. Now, again, most translations will say, except James, right here, as if to connect him to the category of apostles rather than separating him from the apostles. I don't know how the syntax reads in the Greek, but there's one, okay? So we can say, James, very likely, uh, counted among lowercase a apostles, which is what I see that role or office as being in Ephesians 4. Uh, In Acts 14, 14, Barnabas is actually an apostle. Uh, It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, there you go, no need to even keep reading. Barnabas and Paul are both listed as what? Apostles. So Barnabas is either listed, counted among the original 12 and Paul, which I don't believe that's what's happening, right? Or there's another subcategory within the word apostle, apostolos, which is what Barnabas fits into, right? In fact, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2.6 and 7, Silas is very possibly listed as an apostle. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold on to that. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, that's who is being introduced in this letter to the Thessalonians. Paul says in verse 6, In order we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, we could have, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Could the we here include Silas and even Timothy at the beginning of the letter? I don't know. Read the letter and find out. Romans 16, 7 really makes it seem like Andronicus, and Junius are actually listed among the apostles. And it's not just that they're known by the apostles, 
I have a reputation with the 12. It's that they're actually counted as an apostle, not uppercase A, lowercase A. Romans 16, verse 7. Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. Another translation will say, among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Which is which? Depends on what it reads as in the Greek. I believe it's the other translations beside the ESV um, that will actually say they are well known among the apostles. But it's a fair translation possibly to say to the apostles as well. Apollos actually in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, it, this is what Paul says, okay? He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may not uh, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that you may not be puffed up in favor. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich without us. In, Paul's saying, me and Barnabas, or uh, Apollos, because in Corinth, they're dividing. They're going, I'm with Apollos. Forget Paul. And they're like, no, forget Apollos. We're with Paul, right? And there are these divisions. I'm with Peter. It's like, get out of here, bro. So everyone's t- picking sides and uh, appointing for themselves some leader that they're loyal to. I'm Paul. I'm Apollos. I'm in the Peter crew. And Paul's going, look, without us, Apollos, Peter included, you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now watch, for I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. And this whole argument in 1 Corinthians 4 is addressing him and Apollos mainly. Watch, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Then he'll go on to list what he and the other apostles are dealing with. And Apollo seems to be counted among that number. He talks about here, um, I've applied all these things to myself. I think it's in chapter two. He talks about how, look, God planted, or um, Apollos might have planted and, and I watered, but God is the one who brought the growth. Right here, what is Apollos? What is Paul? God is the one who gives the growth, right? I might have planted, he might have watered. It doesn't matter. Either way, we're just fellow workers, and then when he talks about the, the dealings of apostles, guess who is lumped into that category of the apostles and what they deal with? It's, it's Apollos. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, this is interesting. If you go on, the rest of that letter, uh, Paul's recounting who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. He goes, then he appeared to, look at what he, he says. It says, after he was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Hang on to that. Whenever, a lot of times when Paul references the apostles, the the boys, okay, the boys, he refers to them as the 12, okay? So he won't do that in verse seven. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And that made me think like, whoa, dang. Like, did Jesus assemble 500 people? What were they, why were they all assembled in the first place? Or was it individually? I don't know, crazy. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. So this is in chronological order. Paul's going, here's who, here's who Jesus met after his resurrection. You know, uh, Peter, then the 12, then 500, then James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. Now, there are two ways to read this. Either he could have referenced them as the 12 if he was talking about the 12 apostles, Right? 
And maybe that's who he's talking about here. Because at the end of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of Acts, we actually see Jesus appears to them on the Mount, uh, I forget, Mount of Olives, and then he shoots up into the sky. Later, boys, he's gone. But they were the last people to see Jesus. That might be what Paul's referring to, okay? Or, chronologically in order, Paul's just talking about how there were other lowercase a apostles whom Jesus would commission and send out and be a part of the foundation of the church who Jesus appeared to after appearing to the 12. So there are two ways to read that. Either these apostles are distinct from the 12, which I think is more likely because he, if Paul was referencing the specific 12 boys, then he would have referred to them as such. But he says, then to all the apostles, it's like there are others included that aren't capital A, but lowercase a apostles. Okay. You know, I can take you to Philippians 2.25. The same word, apostolos, is actually translated as messenger. It doesn't always mean someone who personally saw Jesus at his baptism and watched him in bodily form after the resurrection. And it can literally just mean messenger. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25 is listed as an apostolos, a messenger of the Lord. Titus and the brothers being sent in 2 Corinthians 8.23 also same Greek word apostolos referred to, uh, you know, applied to them. They're messengers, sent ones, commissioned. The core meaning of the Greek word apostolos is to be sent by God, a sent one, a sent one. And usually when it comes to being an apostle, lowercase a apostle at least, that involves some laying the foundation, some groundwork for the church you know, assembling crowds, preaching the gospel, appointing elders, staying there to disciple. You know, Epaphroditus seems to be have that foundational role, at least in the church of Philippi. Uh, Titus, I think, <clears throat> and a couple other churches. If you go to Luke 11.49, this is the last thing I'll bring up. <clears throat> Luke 11.49, Jesus says, Also the wisdom of God said, I will send prophets and apostles, some of them, some, some, some of these prophets and apostles, okay, they will kill and persecute, so the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. So, Jesus doesn't say all of them, he says some of them. Historically, though, at least as far as we have documentation um, and recordings, all the, the boys, the 12, died as martyrs. And so, even Paul. So either Jesus uh, had in mind the prophets too, and he's like, well, some of them, or beyond just the 12, there are other lowercase the apostles Jesus intends to send, as well as prophets, who won't necessarily die as martyrs and be killed at the hands of the Jews. Um but there must be more sent ones, is all I'm saying. So in other words, apostles, and I should have done this first, <clears throat> apostles are simply sent ones according to the Greek word translated apostle. In every instance of the New Testament, which doesn't have to refer specifically to the 12, the Greek word apostles just means messenger, an envoy, a delicate one commissioned by another to represent him, especially a man sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel. Therefore, back to Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks about the apostles and prophets, 
this right here, whenever apostles are referenced, it doesn't have to be restricted to the capital A apostles, the 12 boys, or Paul. Could just be referring to that foundational role of planting churches as a missionary, getting churches off the ground, sharing the gospel, appointing elders. So when we come to Ephesians, we should ask, hey, how does Paul consistently use the word apostle? Well, if you go to Ephesians 2, this is good biblical research, okay? Verse 19, Paul says this, and this is I, this is very important. Some of you are like, this is irrelevant. It is so important, so important. Because the arguments cessationists put forth sound very reasonable, sound very intellectual and logical, and you're like, I can't beat that. Sound like Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7. I can't refute that wisdom, but if you think about it, you're like, Actually, no, it falls apart. Verse 19 says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Talking to the church, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God. Watch. The household of God, the family of God is what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are the dwelling place of God, the temple collectively built on the cornerstone of Jesus, the foundation of the apostles and prophets is a part of that. So in Ephesians 2.20 here, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here's what I want to put forth. Why are only two specific offices referred to as the foundation of the church? Why not evangelists? Why not shepherds? Why not teachers. I'm not saying this is to the exclusion of them, but what Paul really wants the church to understand is that these two offices primarily play a foundational role in the establishment of the church. So we should ask, in what way? Well, if you go down to Ephesians 3, 5, this is what Paul will say about apostles and prophets. In verse 4, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So what we have here is the focus is the mystery of Jesus, that being the gospel, Jew and Gentile, one new humanity in Jesus. <clears throat> Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? And this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, Right? Colossians will say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ. Gentiles are fellow heirs, boys and girls, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus through the gospel. This mystery right here was not revealed to anyone in other generations, not in the full capacity it's been revealed now. But Paul says, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit, primarily to who? Who has the biggest responsibility of making known this mystery, of revealing this mystery, of preaching the gospel, the apostles and the prophets. Who is the first person in Acts recorded to go out and actually bring it beyond the borders of Israel? Philip. Was Philip a, a, an uppercase apostle? He was not. He was not. He's referred to as Philip the evangelist, but he played a foundational role in the church of Samaria. So Ephesians 3.5 clarifies the gospel wasn't fully revealed to humanity in previous generations. But now, at the time of Paul writing this, 
he can say, now, the mystery has been revealed mainly to, not only to, but mainly to, apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. Number one, this is not referring to Old Testament prophets. Some would say, well, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets who played a prophetic role in preparing the, you know, the way of the Lord and, and, and giving us types and shadows and, 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 and you know, giving us pieces and glimpses of the gospel, but never the full. Here's, here's why I say this can't be Old Testament prophets that are in mind. Because there is a clear contrast between the prophets, apostles, and men in other generations, which includes Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets did not know the full revelation of the mystery and the gospel that the apostles and prophets know during Paul's day. There's a clear contrast between the men of Paul's day, apostles and prophets, and the men of every other generation before. So it can't be referring to Old Testament prophets. Number two, Paul highlights the role of apostles and prophets as receiving the revelation of the gospel in order to make that mystery known. That's what, this is the whole point here. Paul's going, we don't just have a mystery to keep to ourselves. We have a responsibility to make it known and share that faithfully. And so apostles and prophets play a foundational role in the establishment of the church because they're among the first to steward the mystery of the gospel. As we've already seen, I believe this includes people like lowercase a apostles, James, the brother of Jesus, Barnabas, Titus, Silas, Apollos possibly, and others who have that foundational apostolic role of laying the groundwork and preparing, you know, getting churches planted. Missionaries is a fantastic <coughs> missionary is a fantastic translation in my opinion for lowercase a apostle. Because not all of the uppercase A apostles actually had that missionary kind of role. A lot of them, you see, just kind of parking in, in Jerusalem for a while. Then they'll go out and, and to Samaria, fill people with the Spirit, and then dip. Then they'll go, you know, Peter will go to Cornelius. Uh, they'll be filled with the Spirit, and then he'll go back. But it seems like their central hub for a while, um, you know, is, is Jerusalem, keeping things intact in the church in Jerusalem. In other words... I think there's biblical reason to say that since apostolos doesn't always refer to the 12, then in these occurrences, when it's not about the 12, it makes the most sense to see these apostles as just being sent by Jesus under his authority, functioning as ambassadors, doing foundational work as missionaries. It would make the most sense to see these individuals as missionaries who are sent out to lay the foundation of churches, preach the gospel, disciple, appoint elders, you know, get the framework set. But I'll tell you this, even if, even if the word apostle here in chapter three and chapter four of Ephesians is only referring to the 12 plus fault, plus Paul, there's still a question I have. Why are the prophets included in laying the foundation alongside the 12? Meaning this, if apostles, if, if Paul's going built on the foundation of the 12 boys and me, and the prophets, then, then I go, okay, why are the prophets included in that foundational work alongside the 12? Who are these key prophets by name? You know, so we know these prophets are New Testament prophets because of the fact that they're distinguished from the men of other generations. 
But these prophets seem to have an equally watch. The prophets Paul is talking about, which seem to be New Testament spirit-filled prophets, they seem to be on equal foundational footing with the apostles. In other words, they have an equally foundational role to play alongside these apostles. One might say these are teachers or preachers who declare the word of God in a shepherding role, because that's what some people, you know, cessationism has to has to assert that and go, well, prophets, the role of prophet has morphed. Now, they're just teachers. They're not like the prophetically insight, receiving the word of the Lord to communicate. Prophets are just teachers. And so these are just people who preach and teach and declare the word of God in a shepherding role. But I don't believe that's a conclusion we can draw from the text. We can't say the prophets are teachers or evangelists or shepherds, especially because in Ephesians 4, guess what? Evangelists and teachers are separate roles from prophets. They're distinguished. They're not the same. They might overlap in some areas, but evangelists and teachers are not prophets and vice versa. They're very different roles, different offices. So to say that prophets have taken on the role of teachers now is to just take this out of the passage. He gave the apostles, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Wouldn't make any sense. So I believe they are New Testament prophets alongside apostles, lowercase a apostles and uppercase K. <clears throat> that, that, that's one of the arguments people bring forth. And I know we're kind of getting in the weeds here, but I see for those of you that really deeply care about this, I, like I, I know you're valuing this. The other thing that um, this pastor friend of mine said to, to kind of push back against my belief, he said, this is what he says, quote, it is a stretch to argue that these offices will continue indefinitely until all believers are perfected in verse 13. That interpretation doesn't fit the context of Ephesians 4. Verse 12 clarifies the offices he listed are for the equipping of the saints, which I agree. That is the nearest word, and the second closest is building up the body of Jesus. And he says neither of those could be construed as meaning perfection or complete maturity. And I wouldn't argue that they are. I would say those are ways of explaining what he means in verse 13. The context, quote, he says, the context teaches Christians are being built up so that we attain unity, maturity, and the fullness of Jesus. So here's my response. I'm just going to read it. We're going to fly through it. I said, if Christians are being built up or matured by the five roles in Ephesians 4, then that means if you take away any one of these roles, the church is not being effectively built up or equipped to the, in the most efficient way. Paul states the purpose for these five offices, right? He states the purpose. Therefore, the purpose can't be accomplished without the offices in mind here. It's one cohesive list. If you take one role away or one of these different offices, the collective purpose of edification can't be accomplished in the body. So some state that the equipping of the saints or the building up doesn't refer to perfection or complete maturity, right? It's just a general sense of you're going a certain direction, but that's not the basis of my argument. What you fail to miss, people who assert this, is that the standard of our sanctification is listed very clearly in verse 13. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus, the model of perfection, the goal is perfection, the fullness of Jesus. How could that not be perfection? I don't know what else that could be. I think we'd all agree the full measure of the stature of Jesus is perfect maturity. In other words, perfect holiness in lifestyle and perfection. 
It's not attainable inside this fleshly, imperfect body. So I don't see how one could get around that. If that's true, then this sets the bar high enough for the church to be in constant need for sanctification. Otherwise, there's an attainable goal which we no longer need for growth. We no longer have need for growth or maturity. So when people focus on the the phrase mature manhood in verse 13, and I know we're in the weeds, but hang on, they fail to miss the contextual definition of that maturity. Paul has given us a clear understanding of what maturity he has in mind. And according to verse 14, this maturity is to no longer be deceived uh, by crafty schemes or cunning ever, right? This maturity is explained in verse 15 as growing up into Christ. This doesn't just speak of a level of maturity along the way to Jesus that we collectively attain this side of heaven. This speaks of a level of maturity which is on par with Jesus himself whereby which we are never deceived and we've obtained the fullness of Christ, this measurement is perfection. And though there's levels of maturity we can attain along the way in our sanctification, we can become more discerning, we can become more resistant to sin, we can, all these different things, we're talking about the measure of the stature of Jesus. So notice the equipping, the building up here in verse 12 is in the direction of the perfect standard. It's moving us towards that. And until we reach that, We have need of these five roles. They all work as one cohesive working unit in the church. They cannot be, these these roles right here in verse 11, they cannot be and they should not be isolated from one another. There's no biblical precedence to do so. There's not. Because there doesn't seem to be any reason these roles outlast others. And one lasts lasts longer than another. There's no biblical precedence for that. They're all needed equally. They all accomplish the same thing cohesively for the same amount of time, accomplishing the same goal collectively, and that goal is perfection. Hey, real quick, I want to tell you something you might not know about. In the description of this video, you can find the links for all the free resources we have available. And yes, these are all free. Our online Bible study classes, our online church community on the Discord app, all of the sermon notes from our past messages, Bible study cheat sheets, Bible study workshop videos, both our podcasts, and more. Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all these free resources. And while you're there, grab some church merch or grab a copy of my book, Fruitful. This book outlines the essential keys for the most abundant, satisfying life in Jesus. It's perfect for new believers and those who want to take their faith to a new level. Again, all these links can be found in the description of the video below. So go check that out and let's get back to the video. So if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, which is where we're going now. I'm just trying to break these lies off people that you've believed that says God does not speak the way he used to. And I don't know where in scripture we get this idea. I don't know if it's purely based off experience. On either side of this conversation, if you're like, God speaks in different ways or God does not. If you're only basing that opinion and that fact on experience alone, and it's not rooted in the scriptures, you have a problem. You have a problem because experience can't maintain that. Experience is not enough to establish something as a concrete, absolute truth the way Scripture can. We can all experience bad things, wrong things, false things, right? So 1 Corinthians 13. I'm just going to read through chapter 12 and 13, okay? I'm going to show you that Paul makes the same exact argument in chapter 13. He talks about in chapter 12, there's varieties of gifts, activities, manifestations of the Spirit, 
they're all empowered by the same spirit. We're one body. Remember what Ephesians chapter 4, the heartbeat of that passage was, hey, we're one body, one calling, hey, one faith, hey, one baptism, hey. Same thing here. We're all one, one spirit, one body, all that good stuff. Same argumentation. Even if whatever role you play, hey, you're part of the same body. Why am I? Hey, you're part of the same body. Why am I toe? Hey, part of the same body. That's the point. We're all a part of the same body. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually you're members of it. There's a collective and individual level to this, right? So my job is just to deliver the truth, and the Spirit of God will break off lies and deceptions that you have come to believe. And this is part of it. The Word of God is the mechanism that the Spirit of God uses to break off lies and deceptions. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Doesn't that sound very similar to Ephesians 4? Then miracles, gifts of healing. Now, now the order Paul is working from is establishing, <clears throat> when it comes to the order he's using, um, each of these roles has a different degree of help in the church. In other words, the order he's using is what is most helpful in the church, what is most profitable, what builds the church up most, what is most useful to the church. And apparently, there are uh, varying degrees of usefulness and beneficialness within the gifts and roles. Apostles first, then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Well, if you... No. Do all work miracles? It's the same. No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Can you pray for healing? Sure. Can you ask for healing? Sure. Do you have the gift of healing like Nancy down the street who's just laying her hands on everyone that's sitting along the sidewalk? Boom. You can walk. You can stand. You can breathe. You can, you can see. Boom, boom, boom. No. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts. There are higher gifts. Yes, that's okay. That's okay. And I'll show you a still more excellent way. Someone said, can I see the comments? I can. I'm just not reading them because we are going through the scriptures right now. <clears throat> Chapter 13. Okay. I want you to see what, we, what you're about to read parallels Ephesians 4. <laughs> In other words, both passages here both 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4, they both speak of the need for a variety of gifts, the need for a variety of roles, the need to promote edification and equipping. Both speak of perfection and the fullness of Jesus as the perfect, perfect, I said perfect twice, perfect future maturity we achieve. Both passages speak of Jesus as the measurement and the standard of our coming perfection. Both speak of coming out of childish immaturity into perfect maturity. Both speak of when these gifts and roles will no longer be needed, which is when we know Jesus perfectly and are like him. I've made that abundantly clear up front. Now let's read the passage. Watch. Watch. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men but don't have love, bummer. Love is patient. Love is kind. Let's go to verse 8. Love never ends. What's ultimate? What's the most helpful, most beneficial and useful tool for the church? Love. 
regardless of your role, regardless of your part, whether you're a nasty, crusty toe or you get to be the, the, the tailbone and the butt cheek. What, I don't care what you are, what gifts you have. We all have equal opportunity to love with whatever we've been given, with whatever God has made us to be. We all have equal ability and power and opportunity to love effectively. Now, as for prophecies, some of you are offended. I said butt cheek. should have said booty cheek. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now watch. For we know in part. And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, there used to be a common cessationist argument that said, this is referring to the canon of scripture being completed. There aren't many that hold to that anymore, which is I'm glad because that really did not make much sense. But look, prophecies will pass away. Knowledge. Um, when? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So let me ask you something. What category does prophecy fit under? Perfect or partial? Prophecy fits under partial, not perfect. What category does knowledge fit under? Perfect or partial. For now, it fits under partial. Do you know things perfectly or partially? Do you prophesy perfectly or partially? Does God give you full insight into every revelation the universe has to unveil? Or does he give you partial insight and revelation into things he wants you to know? The answer is, these gifts, these roles, these offices, they're partial. They're not perfect, and they're not complete in and of themselves. They actually rely on another, rely on one another. The partial will pass away when? When the perfect comes. So if we're talking about office of prophet, gift of prophecy, gift of tongues, I don't care what gift you want to put into that equation or that category. What we're talking about is those things will pass away when they're no longer needed, when the perfect comes. What's the perfect? Verse 11 tells us. When I was a child, now what Paul's about to do is use an illustration here. He's going to talk about, look, when I was a wee little lad, he's going to use that as an illustration for spiritual maturity, okay? When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Put your hand up if that's still you sometimes. I thought like a child. Put two hands up if even right now you're thinking childish things. I reasoned like a child. The point here is, eventually you got to grow up. When I became a man, this is in the physical, okay? This is in the natural, Paul's talking about physically as a man. When I became a man, I had to give up childish ways. Now he's going to parallel that back to the gifts. And verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We reason like children, you might say. We think like children. We speak like children. We're not perfect. We only see partially. We see dimly. We prophesy in part. We know in part, right? But then, when the perfect comes in verse 10, we will see face to face. For now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What Paul has in mind in verse 10 is seeing Jesus face to face. 
instead of only seeing him in like a bare kind of uh, poorly lit mirror with all the smudges on it and all the markings we see partially and incomplete, we will see him face to face. Right now we know Jesus partially, but eventually we will know him fully. Why do you know he's talking about perfectly perfection? Because the measurement here is as I have been fully known. How well does God know you? Imperfectly or perfectly? He knows you perfectly. That right there is the measurement for how well we will know and see God himself. To the degree that I'm known by God, I'm going to know and see him. And that hasn't come with the completion of the New Testament. That seems to come at the resurrection. Or, for those of us that don't see the coming second coming of Jesus, we die in either way. It's, it's talking about resurrection and glorification and new creation with Jesus. There's no other way to get around that. So, it seems as though there is the need for prophecy and knowledge and the role of prophet and every other gift God has given. Those are all necessary and useful even with the New Testament, even with a closed canon of Scripture, because we have not yet attained perfection. Let me give you a couple more arguments that people are going to bring to you, and this is one of them. Prophecy is teaching now. So prophecy used to be like you'd get divine, supernatural, personal insight and revelation into mysteries and <clears throat> and dreams and visions. That, not anymore. Now the role of prophet is you declare the word of the Lord and the argument goes like this. Because prophets historically declare a message from God, now that we have a closed canon of scripture, all you got to do is open that word to be a prophet and tell people what he says. Now is that good argumentation? Partially. Because when you open the word of God, he is speaking. And everything we're called to say and everything God will say to us has to be consistent with the scriptures. But I could take you to passage after passage, which would show us that prophecy and the role of prophet is actually distinct from teaching and the role of teacher. Those are different offices. Those are different gifts. And they might overlap at times, right? Sometimes God can just break the norm and be like, you know what, my teacher guy, I'm going to give you a prophetic word. Or you know what, my prophet, I want you to teach this congregation this evening. You know, sometimes God will break it out of the norm. But if you go to Acts 15, 32 through 35, you'll see Judas and Silas are prophets and Paul and Barnabas um, are teachers. If you go to 2 Corinthians 15, 3, you'll see that historically, the priest is the one who teaches the law, teaches the word of the Lord. Prophets declare the word of the Lord, but those are private, special, divinely revealed messages outside of Torah or outside of the writings or outside of you know the Psalms and, and the Tanakh. Outside of the Hebrew scriptures, prophets would receive revelation, right? And we got a lot of that recorded for sure. But in 2 Corinthians 15.3, there's a clear distinction between teacher and prophet. The priest teach the prophets. They instruct through their prophetic insight, but it's different. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are different um, than teachers. Ephesians 4.11, 
teachers are different than prophets? I mean, if you go to Second Peter two one, someone will say, "Hey, in Second Peter two one, um, we see the change from prophets being morphed into teachers." Let's see if that's true. Peter warns, he says, false prophets also arose among the people. He's referencing the Old Testament when there used to be a lot of deception, a lot of false prophets rising up. But then he goes, just as there will be false teachers among you. And so the cessationists would go, see how Peter did, see what Peter did there? He took the Old Testament role of prophet and he said, well, now it's not that false prophets will be among you. It's that false teachers will be among you. Peter indicates that the Old Testament age had prophets, whereas the church will have teachers, not prophets. The spiritual gift of prophecy, they say, in the sense of receiving new revelations, that's ceased. Because now, prophets just declare the written word of the Lord. And it couldn't be farther. That, that's, a, that's a huge stretch. And I, I've explained in, I think, my teaching on prophecy and the gift of prophets or the role of prophets, why that's a faulty conclusion to come to. Um, because Jesus says he'll send prophets among the people. Um, Jesus says there will be false prophets that arise. Um, Peter and Jude both both warn of not just false teachers, but also false prophets. <clears throat> and so there, if there's a false version, it has to be, that you know, if a false, if something false is counterfeiting something true, then there has to be a true version of it. Um, so I don't know what you do with that. <laughs> I think that's silly in my opinion, but I, I don't know. I just guess I don't think like a lot of people do. Um, Jesus says prophets and false prophets will still be active in the future. Matthew twenty four ten, Matthew twenty three thirty four, Luke eleven forty nine through fifty. Um, but also here here's why. Okay, the the last question we'll address is this. But the scripture is sufficient, right? God doesn't speak outside of his written word anymore because the word of God is sufficient. What they mean, thank you for that gift, Misty. What they mean is this, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is breathed out by God, right? God is the source. He's the origin of his word. And it's breathed out by him. It carries his divine authority. Therefore, all scripture is profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is where the cessationists will say, hey, see, there's no mention of prophecy. No need for the role of prophets, no need for the supernatural signs and wonders gifts like we see in the early church. None of that. It's the word of God is sufficient to complete a person, mature them, sanctify them, purify them. And I go, okay, pause. He does say the word of God is sufficient to bring someone into equipping or bring someone toward, you know, the standard of maturity or bring someone into greater sanctification and maturity. I don't disagree. But to say that the word of God is the only tool that God uses to train and equip and mature a person, well, that flies in the face of 1 Corinthians 13 and Ephesians 4 and other passages. In other words, God has a holistic training program. Think of the people who only do cardio, you know, 
five days a week they're on that treadmill and you're like, what about your diet? And they're like, ah, oh, I just eat McDonald's. You're like, but, but the diet is a huge part of weight loss. Or you're like, do you ever pick up a weight? And they're like, wait, I'm the only weight I need. I need to lose weight. That's why I'm on the treadmill. And you go, sounds like you, mis- you misunderstand how, how fitness holistically and the body holistically functions. To focus just on one aspect of training and one aspect of bodily physical development um, is to miss out on other avenues of gaining strength. Right, So when it comes to God strengthening and developing and training his people to say he only does it through his word, it's like you're only cardio. You're the only cardio guy. There's other ways. God uses prophets. God uses church gathering. God uses worship. God uses prayer. God, God uses us looking at creation and, and that just you know brings scripture to mind and brings a deeper emphasis on God creates the heavens. God uses people in your life to counsel and train and instruct. God uses your quiet time and your, you know, God uses a bunch of means. And I think Ephesians 4 gives us a clear list of what does God's holistic training program for his people look like. It involves prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds, lowercase apostle missionaries. It involves the word of God, all these things. So is the word of God capable of training me and maturing me and equipping me? Yes. Partially. If, if, if it's isolated from everything else, there's a degree of sanctification and training I'll receive from just having the written word of God. Now, I'm not diminishing the word of God. I'm saying the word of God is beautiful. He's spoken. He's revealed himself. But is that the only mechanism and tool God uses to sanctify and train and sharpen us? And the answer is absolutely not. So is the word of God sufficient to bring a degree of these things? Yeah, the word of God can teach. Why are there teachers? The word of God can correct. Why are there brothers and sisters to come and correct me then? The word of God can train me. Why am I doing these other things like praying and fasting and, and going to church being around believers? Doesn't that play a role in it? This is not, this is one dimension. Here's what I want to say. This is one dimension of how God sanctifies. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Is that the only way God sanctifies? Or is that one of the primary tools that God uses to train us? It's one of the primary tools. But that's not the only tool. So let me say like this, the word of God is sufficient to accomplish a spiritual work in the people of God. And there are practical physical dimensions to that, but it's spiritual in nature. In other words, the word of God is spiritual truth that accomplishes something spiritual in you and does something spiritual through you in the world. And some, this is why someone say, see, the word of God is sufficient. They mean it's enough. It's complete on its own. It's capable of doing what? Of doing what? Because if I give you a list of prophetic words and dreams and visions in scripture or private Holy Spirit whispers and words from the Lord and revelations in the scriptures, in Acts, in the New Testament, if I give you a list of those, you would be looking at prophetic words God gave someone that would not otherwise be found in the written word of God. So the word of God is sufficient to do certain things. But when it comes to other things, the word of God is not sufficient to do that. Otherwise, 
God would have spoken directly from his written. And there's instruction. There's wisdom. There's general wisdom to glean from scripture to navigate situations and to know, I don't need to know the specifics of what's going to happen. I just need to know the general way to approach it and what God wants me to do and how to. But what if there's actually mysterious details God is wanting to reveal to you that would change your course of action and change the way you approach that, that come through a prophet or come through a prophetic dream or come through a prophetic word or the spirit of God. So Acts chapter 15, we see Judas and Silas encouraging and strengthening people through the gift of prophecy, right? Um, In Acts chapter 11, 28, Agabus stands up and he goes, there's going to be a famine. Well, that information would not have been found even with a completed canon of Scripture. If Agabus did not receive that word and we didn't have it recorded in Scripture, we wouldn't know that information and the apostles wouldn't know how to prepare and what to do. So God gets that information how? Through his written word? No. Through a prophetic word that he gave to Agabus to give to the congregation. Acts 21, 9 through 12. We have Philip has four daughters who prophesy. Right? And you go, well, this is when the canon of scripture is incomplete. Even so, the information God conveys, I'll take you to Luke chapter 2. Simeon, he's not even listed as a prophet. Simeon comes to baby Jesus in Jerusalem, pretty weird, picks him up like, you know, Rafiki picks up Simba and goes, This is the one! I've been waiting! Mary and Joseph are going, Do we, do we ask for him back? Would it be rude? He, that's our baby. That Simeon received a word from the Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's anointed. <clears throat> Simeon didn't get that word from the Hebrew Scriptures. Maybe by spending time, the word of, you know, God brought this clear revelation. But that revelation, if it didn't happen to Simeon, if we didn't have it recorded in Scripture, we wouldn't have that information. He wouldn't have that revelation. Holy Spirit speaks in Acts 13.1, you know. We have um, the Spirit of God telling the church in Antioch, hey, set aside Saul and Barnabas. How else would God get them that message? There are things God wants to teach and instruct and give us and details and mysteries to be revealed that I'm sorry, this is not to the neglect of the Scripture. This doesn't diminish the Scripture. Those things won't be found in the written Word of God. The Word of God is enough um, to provide us wisdom to uh, navigate certain situations in a general sense. But what if there's a specific word, like a prophecy for Timothy or in Acts chapter 20, Paul goes, the spirit of God told me I know I'm going to be imprisoned. Acts 21, four, the disciples are saying by the spirit, you're going to be imprisoned. Why that information? That is extra information revealed by the spirit through prophetic words or personally by the Spirit of God that we don't have in the written Word of God unless it was given. Now we have it recorded. What do you know? You know, things like prophecies for Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Ananias' vision in Acts 9, or Cornelius' vision in Acts 10, God didn't tell them, hey, go to Joel, turn to Habakkuk. And even if they had a completed canon of Scripture, all done, and they're not in it, God, it wouldn't have been like, turn to Matthew, you'll get your answer. There's private words, private revelations that come through visions to Peter, Cornelius, Ananias, Paul, John in Revelation that wouldn't have otherwise been able to be delivered if not apart from the written word. Let me paint a scenario for you. All throughout scripture, God, you can read the Old Testament, verify what I'm saying, fact check me. 
All throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, God, mainly Old Testament, God always warns a prophet of impending calamity, judgment, doom, whether it's coming on a nation, whether it's coming on a tribe, whether it's coming on a community or a kingdom. God never does anything without telling a prophet. God never does anything without telling Amos chapter 3. The Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. You go, we already have all the secrets we need in the New Testament. We have the mystery of the gospel. We don't have all revealed secrets in the written word of God. I'm sorry. Not all secrets of the universe and mathematics and physics. All the secrets of what's going to come on America in 100 years and what's going to happen in all the other nations, what's going to happen to our government. and our, We don't have those secrets. But there are certain secrets God reveals to his prophets, to his people. Think about it like this. Noah was a herald of righteousness. God told him the flood's coming. Abraham was warned of famine and was warned about Sodom and Gomorrah, wasn't he? Joseph was warned about the famine coming upon Egypt and the, the, you know, the rest of the people. The signs that Pharaoh <clears throat> and Egypt got on them, the, 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 the wonders that God did in Egypt on Pharaoh, didn't God warn Pharaoh every time through Moses and Aaron? What about Samuel warning of judgment against Eli's house and what's coming and to turn? What about Elijah warning of drought and famine to King Ahab? What about Elijah and Elisha warning of the judgment coming on the house of Ahab and Jezebel so they would turn? What about Nineveh? Right, what about uh, Jonah sent to Nineveh to say, hey, judgment's coming and they turn. What about David being warned by a prophet of the judgment coming upon Israel for him counting his arm, armies and getting proud like Scrooge? What about the prophet warning Solomon that his house was going to be split and it's crumbling right in front of him? What about King Saul being warned by a prophet that his kingdom was taken from him? What about prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesying of coming judgment against the enemy nations through Babylon, through Assyria? What about Agabus warning of famine coming upon Jerusalem? What about prophets like Anna and Simeon being informed that the Savior is indeed coming? What about Jesus, the ultimate prophet, warning in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 that there is judgment coming on Israel and specifically Jerusalem in AD 70 through Rome? So you can see how Amos chapter 3 rings true. God does nothing without first revealing a secret to the prophets. So there are big events and along the way, in between these big events, there are small events that God wants his people to be aware of. So they're warned, so they can take shelter, so they can take the necessary action. God informs the prophets to inform his people. So the scenario, let me give you a hypothetical scenario. <clears throat> if there was some kind of judgment or calamity coming that God wanted to spare his people from, let's say people in, in, in Afghanistan or people in America, the people of God in those nations. And there's great judgment and calamity coming like Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? How would he let them know? The word of God is sufficient, right? The word of God is the divinely authoritative revelation of God. So if the word of God is sufficient by your terminology and by your definition, then we should be have we should have sufficient warning in that. And you go, well, you can read the writing on the wall. The, the Lord warns that people who are living in sin and get dark. And Okay, but the specific details of that, the actual writing on the wall that Daniel had to interpret for you know Nebuchadnezzar's son, that Persia is going to take over. Scripture gives us general wisdom. 
But the word of God, the written word of God, doesn't give us specifics for our time in human history, our season, our nation, our people, our congregation, our neighborhood. Historically, God lets his people know through prophets about specific calamity coming. Why would he change that now just because we have a completed canon of scripture? Does that logically follow? If someone receives a word from God through a vision or a dream or a prophet or prophetic insight about something that's going to happen, why is it that the cessationists will, will scramble and go, that's extra biblical revelation, you're adding to the scriptures, and, and their minds blow, don't know what to do with that, doesn't compute, adding to scripture, that doesn't violate scripture. People will go to Revelation, okay, <clears throat> and they say, here's the pushback I got from you know my pastor in California, which I love him, I just want him to think about these things. He said, quote, you state the Bible should be explicitly clear <clears throat> that no more revelation is needed. Revelation 22, 18 and 19 clearly states not to take away or add to this book of prophecy. This warning is issued several times in the Bible. After giving the law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4 and 12, after the wisdom books, Proverbs 30, this seems like a very clear statement. And since every book in the New Testament was authenticated by an apostle or someone who knew an apostle, like Luke, Revelation was the last book of the canon, and John was the last apostle to die. This means any person bringing new revelation from God as God's official spokesman to the church, if someone brings an, a new revelation from God, they'll experience the curse found in Revelation twenty two nineteen. Here's what I want to say. I don't believe scripture has to explicitly tell us no more revelation is needed. I believe, rather, Scripture, like the, the, <clears throat> the burden of proof is on the cessationist, actually. <clears throat> I believe that Scripture should be sufficient to clearly, not cryptically, not mysteriously, Scripture should be sufficient to clearly tell us prophets, and prophecy have ceased, they're no longer needed, and God does not speak the way he used to. So let me address the whole, you're adding the words, you're adding new revelation. <clears throat> adding words to the prophecy of John in Revelation is not the same as receiving prophetic words or insight as a prophet or as a child of God. Revelation 22, 18, and 19 might be a bookend of the Bible, but that statement applies specifically to the words of John's revelation. Think about that. The warning in Revelation is about the actual prophecy John receives called Revelation. It's the revelation he receives. This doesn't mean that we can add to the rest of Scripture, and this doesn't mean that the canon of Scripture is open. But John's revelation is in mind when that statement is made. I don't believe that receiving prophetic words is a violation of the warnings in Revelation 22 or Deuteronomy 4 or Proverbs 30 about not adding to the word. A prophet who receives a prophetic word, vision, or dream from God is not adding to the revelation of John, not taken away from the revelation of John or Deuteronomy or Proverbs for that matter, neither the Torah nor the wisdom. Prophetic visions, dreams, words don't equal biblical canon divinely authoritative scripture. I don't know why people have come to believe that. 
a word from God doesn't necessitate that it has to be written down as canon now. I don't believe a prophetic word, a vision, a dream is a new revelation from God in the sense that the cessationist believes it is, as if that new revelation is adding something contradictory to the scriptures. And I'll end here. Another thing that cessationist, again, the ceasing of certain gifts, cessationist brothers and sisters will say is something like this. This is what my pastor in California told me. He said, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. First Peter one twenty one. So private words of prophecy are also excluded. And I would say why? All scripture was authenticated by apostolic authority or by Jesus himself. And since no apostles are living and Jesus ascended into heaven, there's no way to verify if the prophecies people receive now are legitimate except by the word of God. So here's what I say in response to that. Scripture being completed is not the same as the prophetic office being terminated or the office of prophet being turned into preaching and teaching. And I say respectfully, I don't believe 2 Peter 1.21 is saying what you're trying to make it say. 2 Peter 1.21 isn't telling us that all prophecy, including private words of prophecy, don't originate in the mind of man. <clears throat> or sorry, 2 Peter 1.21 is telling us that all prophecy, including private words, do not originate in the mind of man, either the word or the interpretation, right? God is the source of that. Men don't get to determine when God speaks, how he speaks, what he says, or even what it means. Genesis 40 verse 8 makes it clear the interpretation belongs to God, right? So I do agree the measurement of any prophecy and any prophetic word or any vision or dream, the ultimate standard and measurement is always the word of God. But this does not mean that prophets and prophecies have ceased simply because Jesus and the twelve have ceased in the way they used to be on the earth. So that, that seems to be a faulty conclusion for me, especially since prophets in the Old Testament actually came before New Testament apostles. One does not require the other. Right? You had Old Testament prophets and prophecies and words from God without the validation of the apostles. One does not require the other. Just because the word of God is our only way to determine the legitimacy of prophets and prophecies, that does not mean that prophecies or prophets have ceased entirely. I don't know why we jump to that. So according to 1 Corinthians 14, this is what people say. They go, prophecy today is to speak forth God's revealed word, his written word in the Bible. That is the etymological meaning. And I respond saying, in every context of biblical prophecy, no one disputes that the word of God is being authoritatively communicated. When someone declares the word of God, they are functioning as a prophet by speaking the divine authoritative words of God, right? So if I open the Bible right now and I read through Habakkuk chapter 2 to you, I am declaring the authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. I am functioning as a prophet, right? This does not mean that the only form of prophecy is teaching the written word or reading the written word or delivering the written word. This also doesn't mean that the only prophets are those who teach or communicate the written word of God as teachers or shepherds or preachers. Ephesians 4.11 makes it clear. Prophets are different than shepherds. 
Prophets are different than teachers and evangelists, and I believe that preachers are included. Prophets declare the word of God and can function in a teaching capacity. Both the Old and New Testament show this. But in the same way, teachers are functioning as prophets when they share the word of God. But historically, the teaching role was given to the priest. Read the Old Testament. And the prophetic role or revelation and insight was given to the prophet. Both played a shepherding, guiding role when it came to the nation of Israel or even the early church. Prophecy is not only teaching or preaching the scriptures. Prophets and teachers are clearly distinguished in both the Old and New Testament. Acts 15.32, Ephesians 4.11, 2 Chronicles 15.3, Matthew 23.34, Matthew 24.10, 2 Peter 2.1, and even Numbers 12.6, Acts 2.17, Job 33.14. Those passages give us three clear categories of prophetic words from God, dreams, visions, or prophecy. None of these scriptures give us time markers for when God will stop speaking like this to people. I'll say that again. No no passage gives us a time frame on when God will stop talking like that to people and speak in that way. I know I said that was the last thing. Here's the actual last thing I want to say. Another pushback I get from people who don't believe that God speaks that way today. And this is what a pastor said. He said, you misunderstand the sufficiency of scripture by stating that the Bible is insufficient to answer people the way the Spirit of God does in the New Testament. No cessationist would argue the Bible can help people make specific decisions, like where to find a job or where to move. They would say the Spirit of God is a guide, just like you do. It's one of the specifically delineated ministries of the Holy Spirit spelled out in the New Testament. This is different. This is where I would differ with him. He says this is different from God communicating in a prophetic dream, vision, or tongue. And I would reference when Paul is actually desiring to go into a place and he has a dream about a man going, help us. And through that, the spirit of God guided. Nonetheless, he's quote, I think you'd be surprised. Most cessationists don't disagree with you on this point. The scripture is sufficient for godliness, not to address every question in life. So here's what I would say in response. And here's what I hope you would learn to say as well. Okay. I don't believe scripture is sufficient to guide people the way that the spirit personally guides and speaks to people throughout the book of Acts. That is very different. The guiding ability of the spirit is active during the time that clear prophetic words and visions and dreams are given in Acts. In other words, to say that, well, the word of God being delivered and being sufficient is different than the spirit of God guiding us and impressioning on our hearts and the ministry of the spirit to guide and instruct that's different like okay how come in the book of acts god leads people by his spirit by impressions by the guiding of the spirit but he's also still giving prophetic words visions and dreams and prophetic revelations why is this if the guiding ministry of the spirit is different from prophetic words and visions and dreams why would God allow for the lesser form of communication to continue? You know, that being visions and prophetic words. In other words, what we have here is an an argument that says visions, dreams, and prophetic words are a lesser form of communication than the written word of God. And also, the ministry of the Spirit to guide and instruct is distinct 
from words, visions, and dreams. Now I'd say those are one and the same in the book of Acts. Those are one and the same. You, I don't know if you can draw a clear delineation, a clear line in the sand between the Spirit guiding personally and God giving dreams and visions. I think the Spirit of God is doing all these things to guide personally. So if the Spirit of God guiding us is the better form of communication, I would, I would say, why do words, visions, and dreams remain active alongside the guiding of the Spirit? The completion of the canon shouldn't play a role in this discussion because the Spirit's guiding ministry is adequate. Watch this. The Spirit's guiding ministry is adequate before the New Testament is complete and after. So in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God's guiding ministry is no more adequate or sufficient than once the canon of Scripture is complete. The completion of the canon of Scripture doesn't change the Spirit's adequacy to guide and direct us. Clearly in Acts, the guiding ministry of the Spirit involves prophetic words, dreams, and visions. So the ministry of the Spirit to guide, to convict, to do all these things is not distinct, I I don't believe, is distinct or... Here's what I'll read. Quote, The Bible describes the ministry of the Spirit as creator, convictor, regenerator, teacher, counselor, revealer, illuminator, empower, intercessor, provider of joy, strengthener, gift giver, all these different roles, right? And then my pastor says, You say that prophecy has... To say prophecy has ceased is to say the Spirit of God doesn't talk to individuals. And I would say, not necessarily. This is a false conclusion you make based on no actual evidence that I heard. I believe you're confusing the spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Spirit to individuals. And so this is why I say, I said this in my prophetic series. I said, look, just because you're not a prophet does not mean you cannot receive prophetic insight or revelation at random times that God decides is fit. Just because you receive prophetic insight through a dream or, or prophecy or, or vision or revelation, that doesn't make you a prophet. That just means, hey, God decided to communicate in that way to you, and that is part of the ministry of the Spirit to guide and instruct us. So in Acts, God speaks by His Spirit. He speaks by His angels. He speaks by prophets, by visions, by dreams, even by His Son directly. So I go, why is this? If the guiding of the Spirit is sufficient, with or without a completed canon of Scripture, Why does God speak in all these different ways to people who aren't even necessarily prophets or have the gift of prophecy? There doesn't seem to be a clear delineation or distinction between the ministry of the Spirit and the way God decides to speak through dreams, visions, or prophetic words to His people at random times. I don't believe these man-made categories are biblically supported because the Spirit of God has filled believers during the time of Acts when they're still communicating to God in these different ways. They're either one and the same or one is unnecessary. That's what I would say. So there's instances of the Spirit of God explicitly stated as speaking directly, not just guiding, but directly talking to a person. Acts 8.29, the Spirit says to Philip. Acts 10.19, the Spirit says to Peter. Acts 11.12, the Spirit talks to Peter. Acts 13.2, the Spirit talks to the church. Acts 15.28, the Spirit of God talks to the apostles. Acts 16.6, the Spirit talk to Paul and forbid him. Acts 20, 23, the spirit testifies to Paul what's coming. Acts 21, 11, the prophet Agabus says, thus says the spirit rather than thus says the Lord. 
And so there's all these instances, even in the New Testament, with the guiding force of the Spirit, with the ministry of the Spirit, where God is still speaking in these capacities to people who aren't even prophets or have the gift of prophecy. Because God can speak how he wants, when he wants, in whatever way he decides is best, and we just have to be open to it. So I, I say all of this to hopefully remove the veil from many of your guys' eyes, where you've cut off any opportunity for God to speak to you outside of the written word. There are guidelines, there are filters, there's a standard, there's a metric, there's a way to discern whether God is speaking or not. This doesn't mean we just randomly open ourselves up to anyone or anything that's speaking and believe it's God. There's discernment, there's a filter, there's a standard. But to say, you know what, that's scary, so I'm just going to say that God only speaks through his written word, well, that's just a flat-out lie, and that's just pure deception. God speaks in a plethora of ways. The main and primary way he speaks is through his word. So if you don't know his word, you will not know his voice in other ways he's speaking. And I hope this is very, very clear that scripture does not support the idea that God removed the office of prophets, the role of prophets, the gift of prophecy, or even the way that God communicated in the past through dreams and visions and, and personal words by the spirit. God has not stopped those things. Even with the sufficiency of scripture, even with the argument cessationists bring forth, even with the, the setup of teachers and the fivefold ministry, God still does what he does. And you can say some things maybe have diminished seasonally, prophetic utterance is heightened, and then certain seasons of human history, it's still active, but it's not as profound. That's fine, because God can do that. But to cut off God entirely and box him into one method of communication is flat out false. And you're missing out. You're missing out on more that God wants to do through you and what he wants to be saying to you. All right? So hopefully this was abundantly clear that I do believe God still speaks in a bunch of different ways. Um, However he wants, when he wants. The question is, are you receptive? Are you discerning? Um, are you open? You know, all these different things. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.